Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Uh, good afternoon, and thank you for attending this lecture at the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please feel free to ask one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. This afternoon's lecture is an installment of IDP student speaker series, and our speaker today is Tobias Brandt. Tobias is originally from Germany and graduated from the University of Hamburg with a degree in Middle Eastern and Religious Studies in 2015. For his bachelor's thesis, he analyzed Al-Qaeda's propaganda strategy on the basis of original Arabic documents. He is currently studying statecraft and international affairs with a specialization in international politics at the Institute of World Politics. He, his key research areas are U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, the role of religion in politics, as well as the transatlantic relationship. Mr. Brandt's lecture is based on a paper he submitted for IWP's course on American founding principles. Please join me in welcoming Tobias. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. The United States, like most Western liberal countries, is a secular nation. The American founders established a political system that effectively separated church and state. Nevertheless, as I will argue today, religion has played an important role in developing the American character. The Constitution of the United States is in many ways a secular document. Article 6 explicitly states that no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. Furthermore, the very first sentence of the First Amendment to the, to the Constitution declares that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Thomas Jefferson thought it was of the utmost importance that no such law be made, as he argued, quote, religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, end quote. And thus, he called for the building of a wall of separation between church and state. In fact, there is cause to believe that many of the founding fathers themselves were not pious Christians, but rather theistic rationalists. For Jefferson, nothing went above reason, and even the supposedly devout Christian, John Adams, struggled with the concept of the Trinity and stories of miracles in the scriptures. In a letter to Jefferson in 1813, Adams wrote, Miracles or prophecies might frighten us out of our wits, might scare us to death, might induce us to lie, to say that we believe that two and two make five, but we should not believe it. We should know the contrary. Pardon me, my maker, for these awful questions. My answer to them is always ready. I believe no such things. And George Washington famously laid his hand on a Bible and added the words, So help me God, when he first took the office. Yet he, too, remained skeptical about the main doctrines of Christianity. He was not committed to the doctrines of any established, established sect, and only believed in a wise and good God to whom all roads lead. Nevertheless, 
The First Amendment ensures that the free exercise of religion shall not be prohibited by Congress. Indeed, the First Amendment guaranteed that the federal government would uphold and respect the free exercise of religion for all groups. No other government in Western civilization had ever before made such pledges, argues John Butler, professor of American Studies, History and Religious Studies at Yale University. In his view, these pledges, together with the history of religion in the American colonies and the growth of religious diversity and activity in the next centuries, determined not only the health of religion in the United States, but much about the character of America's many different peoples. Accordingly, the speeches and debates, personal letters of the Founding Fathers reveal that religion fulfilled a crucial part in the development of the American character as they point in the direction of morality. When revising such documents as George Washington's farewell address from 1796, it quickly becomes evident that the Founding Fathers held religion in the highest regard and viewed it as essential to the success of the young nation. Washington told his fellow citizens, quote, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, the, the firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and to cherish them. A volume could not trace all their connections with private and public felicity. Let it simply be asked, where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice? And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle." End quote. The first president was confident in his assessment that without religion there could be no morality, as it provided indispensable support for the social order. This remarkable description of the role of religion in society speaks volumes to its influence on American life at the time. Washington's words reflected the opinions of the people as well as of the leadership. His successors shared his sentiments. John Adams, for instance, even went a step further than Washington and said, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And while Thomas Jefferson, in Aristotelian fashion, argued that moral sense predated religion, he too acknowledged that religion can codify what conscience dictates and what a particular society permits. The Founding Fathers unquestionably believed 
that religion was needed to maintain morality in the public. Acknowledging the role, the role of religion in creating and sustaining morality, the question arises as to why the Founding Fathers believed that morality was this important in the first place. In this regard, one must consider the historical context, meaning the type of political system that the Founders were envisioning for America. After having defeated the British in the Revolutionary War in the late 18th century, Americans debated how to institute a government that would best guarantee their newfound freedom. The system that was eventually established after the signing of the Constitution in 1787 was unique for its time. American democracy included the consent of the governed, frequent elections, and a separation of powers to prevent the overreaches of the different branches of government. The founders argued that such a system could only work if the American people maintained high moral standards, which only, only religion could provide. The fundamental principles of the United States were first laid out not in the Constitution, but in the American Declaration of Independence of 1776. Here, one finds the famous words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Analyzing the Constitution in this context, then, one realizes that it, the Constitution, is not the central argument itself, but rather a means for implementing the greater principle, which had already been provided in the Declaration of Independence. The belief in the laws of nature and of nature's God differentiated the United States from any other nation at the time. What James Madison described in the Federalist 51, if men were angels, no government would be necessary, can be traced back to the book of Genesis in the Bible. Adam and Eve are instructed not to eat from the forbidden tree, but cannot resist the serpent's promise to be like God, knowing good and evil. Man's desire for wisdom led to his fall, yet it also revealed his nature. He has free choice of will and reason within himself. This means that if he used his reason, man would find that he is created equal and has no right to rule over any other person without his or her consent. However, man is also free to choose what is morally wrong. The founders argued that indeed history had, had revealed that man would often choose wrong because of his very nature. This reality needed to be considered as the structure of the government must furnish the proper checks and balances between the different departments. The founding fathers believed in and respected the natural or moral law which had been developed by St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine leaning on the teachings of Aristotle. A system that was built upon the existence of such a moral law depended on the morality of the people maintaining its principles. The Founding Fathers did not believe in a so-called naked public square, meaning the exclusion of religious values from the public forum. To them, religion did indeed have a role to play in American politics. It provided the bedrock for morality, and consequently, Founding Fathers sought to raise and not diminish its place in society. 
Prior to the Revolutionary War, many Europeans had left their homes and crossed the Atlantic in hopes for a better future in the New World. While they had many differences in language and culture, most of them were Christians, predominantly of a Reformed denomination. Religious liberty in America became increasingly appealing because it represented the opposite of Europe, where religious persecution was rampant. As more immigrants arrived in North America, religious diversity began to increase, and whether it was Puritans, Quakers, or later Baptists, Methodists, or Catholics, America has been rich in Christian denominations ever since. This meant that people were forced to coexist and tolerate the beliefs and doctrines of each other. Fortunately, Americans were able to rely on their commonalities in morality. The French writer, Alexis de Tocqueville, would later argue that all the sects in the United States are within the great Christian unity, and the morality of Christianity is everywhere the same. Morality was not only important for the maintenance of democratic principles, but it also played a prominent role in the Revolutionary War. Scholars Matthew Harris of Colorado State University and Thomas Kidd of Baylor University argue that, quote, many leading patriots were convinced that their fortunes in the war would rise and fall on their commitment to morality. Providence judged nations according to their goodness, they believed. Accordingly, the Congress passed a resolution in 1778 recommending measures to discourage sinfulness, especially in the army. It stated, whereas, whereas true religion and good morals are the only solid foundations of public liberty and happiness, resolve that it be and is hereby earnestly recommended to the several states to take the most effectual measures for the encouragement thereof." End quote. This example speaks volumes to how religious and moral the population of the early United States was. An important explanation for this piety can be found in the clergy. While ministers and priests were forbidden from taking public office, they served instrumentally in keeping the focus on virtue and morality within their congregations. In the 18th century, both clergymen and through their influence, laymen, assumed that political liberty depended on having a virtuous public. The ministers emphasized virtue, responsibility, and the importance of moral choices, and in doing so created important standards that colonists then used to criticize British actions in the 1760s and 1770s. In fact, religion and morality were such effective tools for motivating the public that almost a century later, um, after the Revolutionary War, President Abraham Lincoln used this to his advantage. By claiming in his second inaugural address in March 1865 that slavery was one of those offenses that God now wills to remove, and by quoting Psalm 19, that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, Lincoln invoked the Jeremiah style of sermonizing to shame Americans into greater resolve and purpose in pursuing the Civil War. 
These examples demonstrate how tightly knit religion, morality, and politics were in the New World. Most Americans were deeply religious and aspired to high levels of morality, which, in turn, influenced all aspects of their political life. Their morality had an impact on how they chose to organize their communities and towns, their view of British aggression as a violation of their God-given rights, and their decision to finally rebel against the tyrant. After the revolution, it shaped their ideas and thoughts on how to establish a just government and how to maintain it in the best possible way. And in the mid-19th century, it led to their fights to abolish slavery, which had become a moral necessity if the self-evident truth of the Declaration of Independence, that all men were indeed created equal, was to be, was to be taken seriously. One of the most accurate descriptions of life in America in the early 19th century was provided by the already mentioned Frenchman, Alexis de Tocqueville, in his work, Democracy in America. Tocqueville's account earned him the reputation of understanding America even better than the Americans themselves. His quest to analyze what made democracy successful in America was written for an audience in France where, in comparison, the revolution had not resulted in the peaceful establishment of democracy, but escalated into violence. In dissecting the American character of the early 19th century, Tocqueville provided a detailed account explaining America's success in implementing democracy, as well as the dangers that the young republic could potentially face. Tocqueville offered three main causes tending to the maintenance of a democratic republic in the United States. The particular and accidental situation in which providence had placed the Americans forms the first. The second comes from the laws. The third flows from habits and mores. While the first two causes refer to geographical advantages in North America and the equality of condition, a result of the laws and the social state, the third cause, habits and mores, is what I will be focusing on in the following, following examination. To Tocqueville, mores were the sum of the intellectual and moral dispositions that men bring to the state of society. Mores are consequently our internal convictions or a certain moral compass that is shaped by religion and philosophy as opposed to habits, which are the outward expression of our mores. Tocqueville agreed with the Founding Fathers regarding the impact that religion had on man's mores. Quote, religion directs mores, and it is in regulating the family that it works to regulate the state. I do not doubt for an instant that the great severity of mores that one remarks in the United States has its primary source in beliefs. Tocqueville believed that religion was a powerful tool for the maintenance of a democratic republic among the Americans, as they, quote, brought, brought to the New World a Christianity that I cannot depict better than to call it democratic and republican. This singularly favors the establishment of a republic and of democracy in affairs. From the beginning, po politics and religion were in accord, and they have not ceased to be so since. In fact, 
Tocqueville believed that, quote, Americans so completely confuse Christianity and freedom in their minds that it is almost impossible to have them conceive of the one without the other, end quote. Essentially, Tocqueville argued that the American Republic could not have been established successfully without religion. To illustrate the influence of religion on American political thought, Tocqueville analyzed the hierarchy structures of the different branches of Christianity. In his view, Catholicism appeared to be one of the more favorable denominations regarding the equality of conditions. He argued, quote, Among Catholics, religious society is composed of only two elements, the priest and the people. The priest alone is raised above the faithful. Everything is equal below him. Catholicism places the same standard on all intellects. It forces the details of the same beliefs on the learned as well as the ignorant, the man of genius as well as the vulgar. It imposes the same practices on the rich as on the poor, inflicts the same austerities on the powerful as the weak. It compromises with no mortal and, applying the same measure to each human, it likes to intermingle all classes of society at the foot of the same altar as they are intermingled in the eyes of God. In France, the revolution had not only been directed against the monarchy, but the church as well. For centuries, the Roman Catholic Church had provided the rulers with the consent of God, which meant that any attempt to overthrow the regime equaled a direct revolt against God. Tocqueville described how in America, on the other hand, Catholicism was an excellent tool for the advancement of democracy due to its hierarchy structure. Additionally, the particular living conditions of Catholics in the United States in the early 19th century urged them to pursue a strong democracy. Most Catholics are poor, and they need all citizens to govern in order to come to government themselves, he argued. Catholics are in the minority, and they need all rights to be respected, to be assured of the free exercise of theirs. And where Catholicism brought to men equality, Protestantism led to independence. As one could argue, Martin Luther's doctrine of sola scriptura encouraged believers to find the truth in the authority of scripture alone. To Tocqueville, religion constituted a large part of American homogeneity. As previously mentioned, he regarded the morality of Christianity to be the same everywhere. Quote, in the United States, there is no single religious doctrine that shows itself hostile to democratic and republican institution. Each sect adores God in its manner, but all sects preach the same morality in the name of God. Tocqueville observed that, quote, America is the place in the world where Christian religion has most preserved genuine powers over souls, and nothing shows better how useful and natural to man it is in our day, since the country in which it exercises the greatest empire is at the same time the most enlightened and most free, end quote.
This approach is significantly different from that of Europeans who sought to destroy the influence of religion in order to establish liberty. Whereas the French Revolution produced only more tyranny and terror, America's democracy flourished. Americans embraced both religion and freedom as they considered them to be the same thing. This combination of religion, reason, and liberty was essential to Tocqueville because he believed that religion directed the mores of the American people and in that tamed their passions. This phenomenon manifested itself in the character of the American family. Because of the immense impact of religion on American society, a high level of commitment to family values remained steady. Tocqueville observed, quote, of the world's countries, America is surely the one where the bond of marriage is most respected and where they have conceived the highest and most just idea of conjugal happiness." He also observed that when on leaving the agitations of the political world, the American returns to the bosom of his family, he immediately meets the image of order and peace. There, all his pleasures are simple and natural, his joys innocent and tranquil, and as he arrives at happiness through regularity of life, he becomes habituated to regulating his opinions as well as his tastes without difficulty. While the European seeks to escape his domestic sorrows in troubling society, the American draws from his home the love of order which he afterwards brings into affairs of state. This point speaks to the relationship that a religion in America had not only with the heart, but also with the mind of man. In the United States, religion not only regulates mores, but it extends its empires over intelligence, Tocqueville observed. In calling upon man's reason, religion was able to tame his passions, which the Founding Fathers would have agreed, was paramount to the success of the American Republic. Merging religion with reason proved vital to sustaining democratic principles in the New World, as the United States was essentially a hybrid. The passions of the people were moderated by their mores and their reason, and rationalism coexisted with religion. When analyzing the role of religion in the modern world, one must indeed acknowledge also the impact that secularism had had on it. European thinkers such as Niccolo Machiavelli, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and Immanuel Kant had changed the course of history as their writings led to the expulsion of the influence of the church on politics. The founding fathers of America, too, were men of the Enlightenment and created a secular political system as they were modern thinkers. Accordingly, American priests and ministers were not allowed to hold any public office. As opposed to Europe, however, where this arrangement diminished the power of the church, Tocqueville observed that in America it elevated the place of religion in society. Quote, in America, religion is perhaps less powerful than it has been in certain times or among certain peoples, 
but its influence is more lasting. It is reduced to its own strength, which no one can take away from it. It acts in one sphere only, but it covers the whole of it and dominates it without effort." End quote. This refers to the fact that religion was essentially forced to motivate mankind to aspire to above earthly goods, as it no longer had direct influence over politics. The role of religion was to naturally raise man's soul toward regions much superior to those of the senses. Tocqueville describes how the soul of man is driven toward contemplation of another world, and it is religion that guides it there. Religion is therefore only a particular form of hope, and it is as natural to the human heart as hope itself. Despite the success of democracy in America, Tocqueville warned about the dangers that came with equality. Americans had achieved independence from Britain and created a political system in which all citizens were equal in the eyes of the law. France, however, had shown that revolutionary spirit for equality could be taken too far when there is no regard for morality. Tocqueville, having lived in both France and America, went so far as to describe equality as dangerous to men because it tends to isolate them from one another and bring to each of them to be occupied with himself alone. It opens their soul excessively to the love of material enjoyments. His warnings about the excesses of individualism and materialism can be understood as a critique of previous thinkers. Regarding equality, he especially disagreed with Rousseau. In the worst case, Tocqueville argued, equality could lead to a gentle or soft despotism as a result of administrative centralization and the unproductive power of public opinion. Tocqueville described how Americans, in adhering to religion, sought to avoid this danger. Quote, Revolutionaries in America are obliged to profess openly a certain respect for the morality and equity of Christianity, which does not permit them to violate its laws easily when they are opposed to the execution of their designs. Up to now, no one has been encountered in the United States who dared to advance the maxim that everything is permitted in the interest of society. An impious maxim, one that seems to have been invented in a century of freedom to legitimate all the tyrants to come. So therefore, at the same time that the law permits the American people to do everything, religion prevents them from conceiving everything and forbids them to dare everything. End quote. In times of equality, Tocqueville believed it was of the utmost importance that man not forget the art of association. By virtue of talking to each other and practicing what he called self-interest properly understood, man could overcome the dilemma of constantly comparing himself to his neighbor and consequently trusting neither his fellow man nor himself, but only the masses. 
the church provided an opportunity for association. Here, the American could show an interest in his fellow man and strive for above earthly things, which in turn would purify and restrain him. To Tocqueville, a society in which religion and morality ceased to play a dominant role was destined for tyranny. The French Revolution had turned Rousseau's thought into the act, quote, by which liberty supplies its own motive, by which man raises himself above the dictates of his nature, end quote. It proved how potentially devastating this theory is, as anarchic immorality escalated. One needs only to remind oneself of the reign of the guillotine. Religion was indispensable in the United States because it made man reconsider and internally tame his passions, although by law he was free to do everything that he desired. Tocqueville argued that liberal society could only flourish in a system in which everyone is free, as in accordance with his reason, and directed by his mores. Therefore, he concluded, it was imperative that men keep to their religion when becoming equal. As only despotism can do without faith, freedom cannot. I argue religion played a vital role in establishing and maintaining the American Republic, and it, that its impact on the American character is immeasurable. The Founding Fathers and Alexis de Tocqueville agreed that without religion there could be no morality which would constitute a recipe for tyranny. Most Americans considered freedom and religion to be the same thing, as Christianity and rationality coexisted in the American hybrid. In Europe, religion was excluded from influencing society politically. In the United States, it provided indispensable support for the social order, as it tamed man's passions and directed his mores. Religion was key for the success of democracy in America, and the reason why the horrors of the French Revolution were avoided in the New World. In 2006, then-Senator Barack Obama said the following, Secularists are wrong when they ask believers to leave their religion at the door before entering into the public square. The majority of great reformers in American history were not only motivated by faith, but repeatedly used religious language to argue for their cause. So, to say that men and women should not inject their personal morality into public policy debates is a practical absurdity. Our law is by definition a codification of morality, much of it grounded in the Judeo-Christian tradition. His statement perfectly sums up what differentiates America from other nations, as religion has had a profound impact on the American character. It is nearly impossible to imagine the United States without it. Thank you very much. Are there any questions? Homogeneity, uh, that Christian morality everywhere is the same, 
but also plurality, sort of implicitly by acknowledging all of the different sects. And um, I suppose my question is, uh, do you think that successful socio-cultural political plurality requires a baseline homogeneity? Uh, many people would argue that, I think. Um, that is basically what we're seeing in the world right now. Where are we headed? What's, what's the future going to be with regards to how our nation's made up? Um, what do we think of nationalism? What do we think of homogeneity in general? Uh, is it a good thing? Um, Tocqueville would probably argue that it is. Um, his point was more towards that morality is the same in, in all of Christian, in Christian, Christianity's uh, denominations. But, but yes, it's, a, it's an interesting question, one that's probably going to keep us thinking for many more years to come. I'm not sure what year Tocqueville went back to France. Democracy in America was first um, published, I think, in 1835, and then again in 1840. So it must have been before that. Right. And what's interesting about that, that, his companion that he was traveling with, he believed that his work would almost be more successful, which turned out to be wrong, as Tocqueville was obviously uh, is held in great esteem. And, but, and that ties, uh, that's about what I thought. But what happened was, in the middle of the 1830s, I think as a result of a certain heightened level of immigration in the 20s, and because of uh, the actions of Jackson had, had impoverished the economy, there arose the movement that was called the Know Nothing Movement, mm -hmm. which was very anti-Roman Catholic. Um, and, it, and it had some, some power in, in the US, uh, certainly in the late 30s and early 40s, and even into the 50s. They, they, the, the fellow who was elected president in 1856, called the American Party, came out of that background. Mm -hmm. No, nothing was and there were there was a lot of, of anti anti Roman Catholic propaganda produced by this movement. Right. Well, and, and, and that's what I was um, hinting to as well, with with Catholics being in the minority um, initially, especially the Irish background was not necessarily welcomed uh, in the United States. That's true. Yes. Man, but the, I think that the the immigration of heightened in the 1820s, and it, then it, it diminished after that, although I think because of the potato famine, there was more in the 1840s, a mm -hmm. sort of rise in, in the Irish arrivals. Yeah. Yes, please. Yes, uh, to what extent was our, was our concept of separating church and state due to the fact that in Europe, of course, yeah, there had been a lot of conflict over yeah, the papacy asserts both uh, all temporal and spiritual authority, hence there was no separation of government and, and religion or spirituality. And in the American experiment, the notion was, could we have a civil government where everyone can maintain their own religion without it uh, being manipulated, ultimately? And we point you to an interesting text, uh, 50 Years in the Church of Rome, by a man named Charles Chinnicky, okay. uh, Canadian uh, priest, very prominent when he died, his obituary made the front page of the New York Times in 1899, and he became a confidant of Lincoln's, okay. and he actually wrote that he participated in a, a conference in the 1850s of bishops and priests in Buffalo, New York, where the 
topic of conversation was where to settle predominantly Irish Catholic immigrants into more, so as to most quickly gain political power. And yeah. the debate was between the um, uh, agricultural areas of Mississippi Valley and the urban areas, which was the, the argued as a Jesuit strategy, which mm -hmm. was pursued. And uh, this is all described in Tunicky's autobiography of 1886. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, back there. Um, if you were a policymaker, how would you go about today uh, for governments in the West and in America into, I want to say, re-educating or going about um, teaching future generations the impact of religion upon <coughs> our formation of government and how our government functions as well as how laws are made? Yeah, I think. You kind of gave the answer already. I, I think it would have to be education. The answer would have to be education because the, I think one of the things that we forget that we, now that we do see a sort of decline in the importance of religion in society is that you have to stand up for certain things that you believe in. And when one doesn't do that, one cannot expect the results to not change and become something else. So I think the the strategy would have to be to start with education and and um, teach American founding principles in a way that uh, mentions mentions the history correctly and, and, and the impact that uh, religion had on the American character. But I would think that we're talking about Christians here in America. We, I would think the Christians themselves would also have to want that and, and show a certain desire to do that. And um, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case right now. So in terms of policy recommendations, um, I would I would go in the direction of education, but it would have, as, as with anything, it would have to be a, a grassroots movement. Uh, grassroots movement, that's what I was pointing to in the, in the lecture itself, that religion wasn't forced upon people. It's, the United States is a secular nation, but the role of it was so strong because the people uh, were engaged in it and, and thought it was important. And so that's that's the direction I would go with that. Uh, yes. That's not another example which I grew up, and that was the fact that in, I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, which is Broward County, and Broward County School Board did not hire Roman Catholic teachers. Mm. Um, and, and that was very And as I became older, of course, it concerns about discrimination that I was sorry about that, but uh, it was certainly a feature of, mm -hmm. of that. That gives you an idea of the culture there. Right, right. Yeah, very interesting. Yes, please. I guess kind of uh, as far as the previous question, how to maybe bring back an idea of what the importance of religious aspect. What about having leadership that really kind of champions those sorts of ideas and really uses that sort of Addressing the Soviet Union, 
time where yeah. when he was getting into office, it was really split up. And I, I'm not too sure about like what sort of um, attention was given to religious principles at that time, or like the impact or importance of it. But I'm thinking maybe just like even some sort of uh, present example, uh, because like in today's day and age, sometimes younger students aren't really interested in looking that are full of history and knowledge and they're right. really enraptured by what's going on today on the screen what's in front of us well then put something Yeah, I, what I think is, um, for example, if you look at the U.S. Senate or in general, U.S. Uh, politicians, it is difficult in America to win elections if you're not a Christian. Most, most uh, politicians do claim to be Christian or be faithful to, to, to some degree or another. But I feel like it's become a nominal thing. It's more so that it's a representation of what the country stands for and what most Americans would agree uh, is part of the history that's important. But in terms of the, the values, the principles that really stand behind it, that, that the underlying principle of it, whether that is still accepted across the board is questionable in my view. And so one thing is for sure that cannot impose religion, and of course not. Um, and in terms of leaders using religious language, that can have effects. I mean, certainly it was a great moment when, when President Reagan called the USSR an evil empire and, and uh, didn't hold back and, 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 and said what it was. But I don't know that today that America across the board would feel that way to where the, the constituency would appreciate it even. I feel like there's a there's a distinction to be made there's a distinction to be made between nominalism and, and adhering officially to certain creeds and actually believing and standing for certain principles. And I think that's a that's a, a larger question. But it's a it's a good point for sure. Another the National Prayer Breakfast is run by something called the Fellowship, I think Foundation, mm -hmm. Fellowship Foundation, and and they do they do a, a lot make a lot of effort to try to uh, form politicians more into a, a more obvious expression of Christianity, and that's behind the prayer breakfast and other yeah. activities. Yeah, and there's there's definitely something to that, and, and leadership uh, can can play its part, but I do believe that the the, the real work has to be done uh, within the people themselves. If that's where the direction is that the country or that the world, whoever wants to head, then it needs to be parents that educate their children, and that's where it needs to start. And then I believe eventually politics will be a reflection of that if if um, if that's what people desire, you know. Go ahead. Um, to what do you attribute the secularization of the United States and our sort of loss of faith over time? That's a good question. I think early on it was said that the American Revolution had won and the French Revolution had lost because the immediate result was establishment of democracy in America and more tyranny in France. Uh, now it appears as though you know most people might say that the French Revolution has won and. 
and the American Revolution is uh, is not as prominent anymore. Um, as to where things changed, I would probably think you'd have to look into, into the early 20th century, or the, the change of the centuries, um, when sort of the, the, the principles of the founding were, were beginning to change in terms of what people thought of the world. America, for the first time in its history, began to engage internationally uh, in, in a bigger way, not just uh, to, in the region of the Western Hemisphere, and, and World War I was certainly a moment where it started to uh, assert its dominance, and then after World War II, certainly it established itself. And so with that comes probably a different uh, outlook on things towards do we need to change our system if we want to be this world global player? So I would, I would start there, and um, I would think that the foundations were at that point uh, really questioned in a way that, that previously hadn't been the case. Tag on to that, um, dealing with the word uh, Hellenism, or Hellenization, Hellenistic philosophy, the, basically the practice of uh, within Greek culture, you had you know development of schools of thought, argumentation, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. We're seeing in society now, uh, I would say a death of that. Um, would you also say that? has also contributed to a um, lack of inspiration from Hellenization in modern culture or a void from that in the intellectual space, um, and what can you do to fix that? I believe that most people, unfortunately, and that's, that probably goes for any nation or any region in the world, are probably not very, very well versed in history, and so what the average citizen of Germany, America, France, or any nation could tell you about um, the old Greek, ancient Greek culture that has infused principles into uh, society, um, that's questionable as to, as to how uh, deep that really is still embedded in the, in the culture and the society. I think in America it might be a little bit more the case than in Europe, where where those that are engaged in that sort of um, search for, for history and for identity, for culture, those maybe you know, are more interested in, in learning about Greek culture and Athens, Jerusalem, and what, what the, the combination of reason and, and revelation meant for the coming, to, coming about of a society uh, such as America's. But I, I don't see sort of a general desire for that in any society. That is very much a specialized feel, I would say. And um, certainly it's part of the reason for why these dogmatic issues, whether they be religious or a philosophic nature, of course we, we're seeing a decline in that because those principles are not being talked about as much anymore. Um, but I, I would say that's a general, general um, tendency that's not just an American tendency. Over here and then in front. Who was, who was first? Go ahead, sir. Um, after the research that you've done, if you took yourself today and say you were a Tocqueville and you came to America today <clears throat> and you traveled around, how differently would your 
observations be? What would your Democracy in America book really sound like today? Yeah, yeah that's As far as uh, is religion, we, we, we've identified that it plays a, played a key role in our character development right. as a nation, but how much of a role is it playing in the maintenance that he said was so important mm -hmm. to avoid tyranny? Yeah. Would, would he say we're on a slippery slope? Would he, what, what do you think? Yeah, he, he would say? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I think he would probably come to a very different conclusion. Uh, first of all, I think that, well, this is a famous quote, you know, America is like a country of Indians being ruled by Swedes, speaking to the fact that you know, within the country there's many religious people, but the elites and the, and the politicians, Washington, D.C., uh, that's the Swedes, the least religious people in the world, whereas the Indians are the most uh, religious people in the world. It's a country so, of Irishmen. Yeah. That's sweet. That's right. the... um, so, I think there is definitely a disconnect when it comes to that representation, and then also, which which speaks to the point that was just brought up, that um, the sincerity, the the actual uh, belief, and, and and like you say, sustaining of that mm -hmm. is not the same anymore. So I do think Tokyo uh, would come to a different um, conclusion. Absolutely. Um, what one doesn't fight for is going to be hard to ma be maintained. Right. And I think that's certainly what we're seeing if we look at public policy debates, what's going on, the civil discourse is eroding for sure. So I, I think that definitely plays into it, and I believe Tokyo would come to a different conclusion at this point. Yes, please. Uh, earlier you mentioned uh, World War One and America's engagement with the world, and uh, this was exactly the time when the progressive movement uh, took off, and many would argue that progressives technically refounded the United States. And it was the, uh, it was a thing at a time for many American intellectuals to travel to Europe to see how the welfare states work there and uh, import many of the aspects of European life to America. and. European intellectuals had actually influenced many American policymakers. My question, I suppose, is how would you, to what extent European intellectuals actually impacted uh, the way American mindset was shaped in the beginning? Of the yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think you hit it on the head. That's exactly right. Um, I think America and Europe are both doing this when it comes to cultural trends. Europeans love to imitate Americans when it comes to fashion and certain culture and cultural aspects, but when it comes to uh, philosophy, and German philosophy, French philosophy is very uh, appealing to many Americans. It was at the time, and it, it, it sometimes it's it's just if you have a British accent, sometimes can sound you know a little bit more esteemed. Maybe no, that there's something to that. I think European philosophy definitely impacted. America starting, you know, with, with the turn of the century, and that's still the case. That's, I think that, that has not ceased to happen. And now with, with globalization, with the internet, with so many different ways that the world is interconnected, of course, it's much easier to, to just go into that same direction and be uh, impacted by what happens on the other side of the Atlantic. We're much more connected now than we, than we were back then, of course. Yes, sir. I, two other things I just, just to mention. I was recently at the Museum of the, the Bible uh, here at DC. It's a fairly mm -hmm. new structure. It's interesting. One of the first murals once he's walking in is of uh, those purporting Judean ancestry arriving, being greeted by Native Americans, and uh, it brings to mind also a uh, audio recording you'll find at archive.org of a man named Benjamin Friedman. 
uh, lifelong Jew converted to Roman Catholicism when he died, but had been uh, very prominent in Wilson's uh, campaign and uh, connected to the point that he actually was at the Treaty of Versailles as part of a delegation of 117 Jews. So he's 71 years old, describing on this audio tape at the Lord Hotel the whole history of how the Balfour Declaration came into existence and the tensions between uh, Jews and Germans. In Germany, where Jews had the best of any in any country in Europe prior to World War I, absolutely equal civil rights. But, uh, I just go there because uh, today it's acknowledged that APAC has extraordinary influence. You know, Zionism has really been a, a force evolving, certainly in the last thousand years, mm -hmm. bringing pressure to bear. And uh, some Congress people say that every member of Congress is compelled by APAC to sign up a loyalty oath or they will be uh, confronted with a well-funded opposition candidate in the next election. So I just ask you to explore also in your research the history of the purporting Judean ancestry and our uh, laws and politics and even control of today of central banking, uh, the uh, media and uh, entertainment industries. It's yeah. very influential. That's true. And um, that was certainly an uproar when uh, Mearsheimer and Walls came out with the, their book on the Israel lobby, you know, um, when sort of the realist school of, of international affairs uh, all of a sudden was questioning uh, the relationship between Israel and the United States. And that's true, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting case study to, to see what uh, religion, uh, if it's, when it's well organized, what it's capable of doing uh, in, in a political system. So with regards to a Christian Scenario, scenario like that, questionable what that would look like because obviously Israel is in a much different situation, surrounded by adversaries, if not to say enemies, and with a certain immediate desire for uh, security and safety in, in, its, in its country, and then you know, as an extension uh, internationally looking for support. It's definitely something that I don't see would be similar with Christianity, whereas you know, Jews have had a history of, of, of being persecuted that is obviously that everybody's aware of, and, and to where Christians, um, at least in the current time, I don't think would rally behind a certain cause as, um, as strongly. It wouldn't be, this speaks to the same point that I brought up earlier, is there a willingness, is there a desire to even um, revisit these, these principles and, and, and stand for them? But it, yeah, you bring up an interesting point for sure. And did I mention the name Benjamin Friedman? That was the name of the man who spoke in 1961. Okay. And uh, some would argue that in our last 17 years of, of radicalizing and then destroying anyone who can be radicalized in proximity to Israel is ultimately, of course, serving the defense purposes of Israel. Mm -hmm. um, Iran, perhaps, even being the most prominent uh, objective at the end of that path. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yes, please. I'm sorry, Tobias, I missed your lecture, but I, as you know, I intended to, but I was, I'm in demand. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to ask your opinion about Roe versus Wade, the details of it. I've always considered that to be kind of an official American sanction against morality, theology, religion, and so forth. To me, that is the epitome, the acid test. And until it gets refuted, and issue came up, of course, over the Kavanaugh hearings and so forth, although it's not the, the main issue, but 
I, I consider that to be definitive. Uh, and I wondered if, as an official, uh, legislative official, uh, the man for American behavior, do you agree with that you know, rather catastrophic verdict? And do you think it, it is liable by any other uh, judicial or executive act in well, first of all, I, I, I find it peculiar the way uh, arguments are being made on Capitol Hill. Um, the, the word that's being thrown around in, with regards to Roe v. Wade is precedent. And it's being said, well, it's established, it's established precedent. But so was slavery. And so in terms of, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but in terms of the judicial uh, review of that decision, precedent is only precedent. It can be broken if we if we if we look at the law. I mean, that's why the Constitution was amended because Americans finally came to their senses and realized that slavery was wrong and needed to be abolished. So uh, that's number one. Number two is, and I think that also speaks to my point about nominalism. I feel as though many politicians, and this is again, not an American-only phenomenon, um, go the way the wind blows, and when culture dictates one thing or another, they acquiesce in a certain way. And with regards to Roe v. Wade, I think there would have to be, again, a grassroots movement sort of coming from the people that would, that would um, then, as a, as a result, force politicians to, to behave in a way that the people would, would like. But I, I think it's, um, when it comes to precedent and established law, any, the law is only so good, you know, as, as good as people uh, are constantly looking at it and, 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 and thinking, is this, is this right? And the Constitution, for example, the Constitution and, and the Declaration have principles that are principles, only good, good principles only if they apply and if they're correct for forever, you know, if, if they if they're not good, then they should not be the principles. And what what uh, what what's fantastic about the Declaration, uh, as I said in the lecture, is that it's sort of the principle on which the Constitution is only the the codification of it. And and so with any law, you, you'd have to be able to look at it and say what is actually right and just. What is what is the politics we we want to want to do. All right, thank you very much.